You are now checked in to Stand Up New York Labs. Oh, yeah. They won't charge enough for their festival talk. R.I.R. badges and their protest wall. Hey everyone, welcome back to Free Speech, recorded at Stand Up New York Labs here on the Upper West Side. In front of me is Jeffrey Lewis. He is uh, commonly referred to as an anti-folk hero. We'll just use that uh, phraseology for now. And he's also a, a cartoonist, born and raised in the LES. Um, he's an artist. We had a very similar young adulthood, uh, both fans of punk rock. Both toured Europe in our backpacks, and uh, I feel like I swung to the right, and I think uh, Jeffrey decided to stay as the freaky beatnik that he is, and I find that interesting. Um, it's you do so much, Jeff, and I was thinking, like, just to plug it, it would take me twenty minutes. If people are interested, he's easy to find on the Google machine. Just Google Jeffrey Lewis. His site will come up, the JeffreyLewisSite.com or something, right? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> it lists maybe 50 records. Uh, I, I used to uh, – everybody used to actually say their website address. You know, you ever listen to like <laughs> radio shows where everyone's like, oh, to find out about our cause, you type in HTTP dot blah, 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 dot com. Like – who bought, I don't even put my website on my comic books anymore or on anything. Like, right. Like just type the name in. Well, I had a, a baby boomer yesterday, the author of uh, Free Range Kids, actually. Uh, she said, give me your card. And I was. I just said, just look me up. Yeah. Gavin McInnes. It's, I'm easy to find. Yeah. I feel like the uh, it, the that whole thing, I mean, people are like, is your, is your email address on this thing? I'm like, no, but it's unfindable. You'll get it. Yeah. And then I feel like, why even tell people? Like, are they going to go look you up? It's sort of like advertising. Do people see an ad? Billy Idol has a new record, and they go, oh, wow, I'm going to go buy it. Well, that's, uh, that, always sound, that always seems to be uh, ridiculous, right? And yet, obviously, they spend gazillions of dollars on advertising all of the, the, the days out that, you know, Coca-Cola and everybody else that you know, plasters their names everywhere and puts their names on shirts and billboards. So they wouldn't do that if they were losing money doing it. They're in it to make money. So well, we don't know that. It might be um, this long. The only thing that I've seen ever supported is the politician who spends the most money tends to win. So that implies that getting your name out there well, works. Well, sure, the soda that has more advertising. I mean, there's, I don't think there's any particular, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Is Coca-Cola a more delightful uh liquid than uh you know mr pib or something but i'm sure it sells a whole lot more because like it's just part of reality because everybody's like oh yeah we assume that if you're going to get a soda it's going to be that one because that's the one that's name is plastered everywhere but and i don't think you know, that's a given maybe coca-cola is ubiquitous because it was first um i don't but well i don't know if that standard applies to all things though i think that you know when it comes to uh shoes or when it comes to uh, even, you know, rock gigs. Like you walk around the city, you see these posters plastered everywhere for some artist, you know, maybe there's somebody that I've never heard of and they're playing shows at Terminal 5 or they're playing shows at Town Hall or at Madison Square Garden. They have this huge poster campaign. Suddenly everybody in the city, I mean, there's 8 million people walking around New York that see that name now. And the next time somebody says to them, hey, I'm going to go see so-and-so's concert, 
instead of being like, I've never heard of that person, they're like, oh yeah, I've heard of that person. Yeah, and then the, it kind of like it just the only reason they're going to that up. show is because their friend says you should check it out. You should come with me. They would never go to that show on their own accord just because they saw a billboard. Right. People just are spoon-fed uh, information and ideas, and the power of suggestion is incredibly powerful. So that's why all this advertising exists, I guess. I mean, if all this advertising didn't exist, I guess there would just be all this empty space that could be filled with art or uh, interesting messages or something else to put in your brain other than... Well, that's what graffiti um, is. It's yeah. advertising with nothing to say. Yeah, although it's in some ways, um, you know, it, it functions as like a metaphor for advertising. You know, it, it makes you aware of how... It, it's funny that graffiti is considered so invasive and this horrible social blight just to have like some, uh, some stuff on a wall, whereas all the other messages are not considered some invasive social blight. They're considered like a fundamental part of how our society runs that I've got to see, you know, some message for some, some movie or some TV show. Or well, at some least that's the thing. I am one of those people. I do feel that way. And at least Kraft is advertising some mac and cheese that you can buy. DAP3324 is just writing et with etching cream on some Italian dude's restaurant window. Right, except uh, DAP uh, 237-11 is a, a character of, uh, you know, enough conviction that they want to beautify the world or at least uh, make the world a more interesting place at great risk to their own personal health and safety um, uh, rather than for profit. Um, and you think DAP 134, when he etching creams an old Italian, is trying to beautify that window? Yeah, do you ever see these cities that actually, uh, that, I mean, New York City barely has any graffiti anymore, but do you ever see, like, you know, you go to some you know, certain areas of London or Berlin or certain places where you're, like, you're just walking through this incredible creative space where everywhere you look there's something cool and interesting to look at, and you're like, my God, New York City is so lame. You come home to New York and you're like, I just see ads everywhere. I just see, like, Donald Trump's face all around just because, like, it's purely based on who has the money to occupy the uh, visual space rather than like who's got the guts to and the, the creative concept to, uh, you know, do something with that space that uh, makes it a, uh, you know, a, a world of different people's artistic well, ideas. Well, you're definitely, yeah, that's definitely the graffiti at its best is some big, beautiful mural on an abandoned building. That's nice. But New York, for the most part, especially where I live in Williamsburg, they've totally abused the privilege and they just write their stupid fucking nickname in bubble letters like high school girls would write on their binder and dis they disgustify the neighborhood. Well, I, 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 go, I walk around Williamsburg, but I see all these disgusting graffiti paint murals on the side of buildings but it's an advertisement for some new showtime tv show you know and they're <laughs> utilizing like spray paint you know i'm like what is this all about and obviously they're going to be embraced with open arms by like the city you know because like as long as you're selling something um yeah it's you're okay. contributing if you're not, to the economy that show not, was hard well, to make uh well i don't know i mean that graffiti might have been hard to make too <sighs> you know some shows are better than others and some graffiti is better than others some ad campaigns are better than others but um, suffice it to say, the person painting that Showtime ad up on that wall um, is not as personally invested in the, that, the uh, creative aspects of that 
as the graffiti writer is. Yeah, and that's that. why he did such a better job because there was a financial incentive to do photorealism of the project that he was paid for by people who contributed to the economy. Whereas DAP 334, that restaurant owner had to replace the glass. That's 1500 bucks. He just fucked the economy. The other guy's a part of society's helping. We have well, the helpers I certainly wouldn't, and the uh, vandals. I certainly wouldn't advocate for uh, anybody uh, in advertising or in graffiti to vandalize somebody's local shop. I feel as though that's that's a that's a wrong, whichever way you slice it. But there's a whole lot of other you know spaces in which something could uh, take your attention, whether it's a you know a billboard that says something purely text-based or uh, some kind of imagery or just the way somebody paints the outside of their house. You know, somebody might have a, uh, you know, a purple house with green trim and you might say, huh, that's, uh, that's kind of interesting. You know, that's just something interesting to look at. Um, whereas, um, you know, I feel as though the fact that somebody who can walk up there with a, a million bucks can say, well, I'm going to take up this wall for the message that I want. And the next person walking up there who, you know, it's doesn't not have a message. Bucks. It's a nickname. Well, it's not a message. It's an advertisement. No, that's a message. Uh, it's check out our show that we worked our asses off on and invested tons of money and could lose our shirts. I don't know. I think the graffiti writer stands to lose more than the people who. Uh, what? He'll get know, a the, fine. He'll might have to clean up some shit. Uh, a, he might a get, show he might get takes punched 10 in the months. Face. My cop might punch him in the face or, uh, you know, we might end up. A New York cop's going to uh, punch him in the face. Some significant. A New York uh, cop's going to risk it, a lawsuit. <laughs> they don't doesn't seem to stop them from shooting people, so uh, I I feel as though the uh, art by any means necessary or expression um, there's still a a Darwinian aspect in the sense that some are better artists, some are more driven, some are more creative, some are pushing themselves more than others. I'm not even a particular expert or advocate of for uh, one graffiti style over another, etc. But I I certainly admire and respect um, the fact that people are out there writing this stuff and you see it in these locations like, my God, how they must have hung off of that rooftop. You risked they your life have, uh, to write your nickname in bubble letters on someone else's property. I think it's What brilliant. an idiotic thing to do. I, I think, it, well, is it any more or less idiotic than uh, painting a canvas or making a movie or well, art Well, that's your art canvas. You bought a, that canvas. Well, that's your art, canvas that you, and no one, it's not on anyone else's property. If they want it, they can buy it. Well, I feel as though, um, you know, artistic creation that uh, breaks the boundaries of what was considered technically possible or, uh, you know, legally possible or creatively possible. That's what art is all about. It's like taking the structure. It's expanding the goalposts of what people think is feasible. And nobody would have ever thought that, you know, from whether it's uh, – you know, Picasso putting two eyeballs on one side of the face. That was his People were canvas. Up a, yeah, but he I mean... He didn't do it on anyone's property. Right, but I mean, if you were around then, you would have been like, this is a travesty. This is uh, this is not the way yeah, it's supposed to be. Yeah, but that would have been my personal opinion. I wouldn't be inflicting that. Graffiti inflicts someone else's nickname on your fucking property. Property? On Why? your house. What? What? Who's house? My, you have a, do you own a house? I own several houses. Well, uh, maybe... Uh, it's maybe I, I feel as though uh, the idea of owning property that other people live in uh, doesn't make me feel so comfortable. I, I live in a co-op <laughs> where there is no landlord, and I feel as though that's a, you know, you remove the profit margin from it. Why should somebody be making a profit off of other people living? Uh, 
Because they, what? So you're still, this was what, the way I used to feel when I was an anarchist punk rocker. You think rent is wrong? No, there's, there's, there's a definitely, there's, you know, there are costs that keep a building from falling down, you know, keep the infrastructure operative, keep the sidewalks from, you know, crumbling apart, uh, keep the hedges trimmed, et cetera. Um, there's running, there's running costs, there's operating costs, but I live in a co-op, um, and there's no, there's nobody making a profit off of it. So, uh, yeah, but that's an artificially maintained economic model that the government well, has enforced. Well, that's, so are, so are the millions of dollars of tax breaks for all of the high rises. That's an artificially, uh, that's an, that's, you know, that's welfare for the millionaires, billionaires, gazillionaires. Um, you can't look at any single one of those towers in Williamsburg and, uh, not realize that they're, you know, they're essentially being bankrolled by these tax breaks. So they don't deserve uh, it. They didn't build that. They don't deserve those buildings. They didn't earn well, it. Well, they could pay tax on it, like, like, uh, you know, like I pay taxes, like everybody yeah, else pays taxes. The rich pays a lot of fucking tax. Not proportionally. They don't pay. You don't enough. think so? No. You, if you make over two hundred and fifty grand a year in New York City, you're looking at about fifty percent tax. That's not including the daily sales tax and all the other taxes you pay. So how come there's still not enough money to uh, pave the FDR drive? Because there aren't enough rich people. Uh, New York City's got more rich people per square inch than any place on right. the planet Earth. And no one's done the math. If you do the math, you realize that taxing them all at 99% isn't going to pay this massive deficit. I think it will. It, I, I, I can I show you the math. It doesn't add up, Jeff. Well, I think it's a, myth I think there's it would, this a, big pot of money sitting somewhere that would solve all our problems. I think it would it would help. It wouldn't solve all of them, but it would solve a lot of them. We're eight. We're at eighteen trillion. That's not even close. All the billionaires in the country added together couldn't even take a chip out of eighteen trillion. Uh, well, no, I I would I strongly disagree. I feel as though the resource. If you're saying that America does not have the resources to uh, to pave the FDR drive, that that we're we're, no, we're in much worse condition than uh, I'm saying America. Is the American the rich don't have enough to pay the debt. Uh, they don't have enough. They don't have eighteen trillion. Well, they might not have enough money to keep dropping bombs on other countries, but they certainly have that's enough not money. That's not a big cost either. To uh, that's a pretty significant cost. That's six hundred like, million. I think uh, the I think the uh, American infrastructure in terms of you know education, healthcare, we hurl money housing, at education. Uh, affordable house. Why does affordable should, housing exist? Because we need to live somewhere. Uh, why should I need to be a millionaire just to live? Because you want to live in a millionaire place. <laughs> if you a, don't have the money, you have to commute. Uh, well, you don't get to well, live well, in sure, Zurich. Why should you live in downtown Zurich? Well, right. That's what Mary Antoinette would have said. But, you know, there's It's a, not your right to live anywhere you want. You don't get to eat at the well, fanciest restaurant. Well, no, but you should live. Well, what about, um, you know, the fact that people live in neighborhoods that then, you know, like these people that just lost their homes on East 7th Street due to this fire. Um why should they have to lose the neighborhood and the community that they've lived in for decades um, just because there's not, gonna, you know, because there's going to be absolutely no, uh, you know, no consideration for the fact that, like, they live there. Why, why is my home not my home? There, you have some, there's absolutely no priority placed on uh, somebody's, somebody's sense of, like, where they live and what they contribute to just being where they are. Uh, if I don't it's understand all what about you're talking dollars, about. They, this th sounds like we have a fundamental difference of, of mentality where you're seeing it from 
what my country can do for me, and I'm seeing it as what you can do for your country. Like, yes, it was a tragedy, tragedy that, that that building blew up, and that, that building should be insured, and they should get money to help them get a new apartment. You sh you, but you have apartment insurance for that. Well, how much is apartment I, I, insurance? It's like 80 bucks a year. Well, I'm not under any uh, illusion that I'm going to uh, suddenly walk out of here and you'll be uh, voting for Ralph Nader or anything. So, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't even know what this podcast is. But, uh, but, but here I am, um, having taken the lovely MTA bus over here for uh, $2.75 and uh, all these uh, poor working schlubs on the bus experienced a, a pretty significant 45-minute delay. I don't know how stressed out they were about getting to wherever they were going, but uh, it seems to me that uh, somebody with uh, more money would have just jumped in a cab, gotten across town, and yeah, That's the advantage right there, of, of, being, of making more money. I mean, Right. It, so do you think that it's feasible that everybody in New York City, 8 million people, can just snap their fingers and be like, oh, well, you know, it does make more sense to have more money, therefore, I'll make more money. They're like, not I, as good as people who are rich. <laughs> They're not as good at what? At uh, chemistry. If the if you're a brilliant biochemist, then you will come up with patents that help solve cancer, and that in the free market, because no one wants cancer, is worth about a hundred million bucks. If that guy buys a building, then he deserves all the rent money from that building because he's so fucking smart that he made the world a better place by helping to cure cancer. Well, you think if I had cancer, and there was a cancer treatment, um, if I had a bunch of money, I deserve that cancer treatment more than somebody else who doesn't have a bunch of money deserves that cancer treatment. No, of course not. So if there's uh, something that makes, you know, I'm just if, saying, there was, if, if there was if there was something that could cure cancer, are you saying that that is something you would put a money value on that would cost money to get, and therefore somebody with more money deserves their well, the life way around more that than is, somebody with is less money? Is we come up with an insurance plan, but I'm not talking about the the cancer patient. I'm saying there's this assumption that people with money somehow cheated or, or got it from their daddy, and it totally ignores the bootstrap billionaires who are a good two-thirds. Uh, what, what do you poor. feel about inheritance? What do you think about inheritance? It usually doesn't last. It usually... It, <laughs> I'm, sure no, I'm sure no millionaires inherited anything. No, about, I'm sure inheritance isn't a factor whatsoever no, I in just, the current I caste system. I just told system. you it's about a third. A third uh, of well, billionaires you're, you're plucking were these numbers out of, out of thin air. But no, I, I've I looked would, into it. I, I think the average person would uh, would uh, yeah. But you're, you know, all be, your shit is I think, and see, it's probably I've well, looked I, into this. Well, two thirds of the world's billionaires grew up poor. Uh, um, I would be surprised to hear that. Whatever, we could look at stats. But I so, so you think that um, you think that the world wouldn't change at all if there was no more inheritance? If, if everybody that died a millionaire, that money went into society rather than went to their relatives. You think everything would end up the same? You don't think there's any kind of uh, this has been done. There, there's any kind of uh, there's any kind of built-in caste system that means that if your parents are rich, you are more likely to grow up rich than somebody whose parents are poor are likely to grow up rich. It, this, are you really going to tell me that somebody who grows up with rich parents is less likely to end up rich than somebody who grows up with poor parents? No, I'm not going to say that. But I am. You're totally ignoring genetics with this mythical world of equality where we're all born the same. No, some people are born genetically um, smarter. Genetic. Well, well, maybe some we should go around measuring. Maybe we should go around measuring people's heads and seeing who's genetically. So, oh wait, they tried that a couple hundred years ago, and it ended up uh, didn't didn't end up so good for it a bunch. of people. Ended up pretty good for a bunch uh, of people. It ended up maybe, great for well, Sweden. Ended up all right for the Nazis for a couple of years, but 
you know, once you start getting into who's genetically valuable well, and who isn't. Well, that's the problem. Because we're uh, so scared of another Holocaust, we don't go near this subject because it might lead to white supremacy or some sort of supremacy, and then the uh, bad guys will get killed. All right. Well, all right. So I guess what we need to do is make people less scared of a new Holocaust, less scared of, uh, you know, going down the road of figuring out who's genetically superior and uh, suppressing no, the genetically what we inferior do is people. We, and then, uh, we then totally things all right, ignore end up it. all right for the best. Yeah. We totally ignore it. We don't. Uh, we don't enforce equality. We don't enforce unequality. But we kill affirmative action. We kill pouring money into multiculturalism and diversity. And we also don't give. Uh, we don't give the billionaires any breaks either. I'm not saying we have a school for the uh, the elite. All right. Well, we can agree to uh, not give the billionaires any breaks. I'm a libertarian. I'm an anarchist. I want no rules. I don't want the government bailing out the banks, just like I don't want the government giving welfare out. Okay, I think uh, we can agree that the billionaires should stop receiving welfare and uh, tax breaks. Well, that's, a, that's a point of agreement. Well, so it, that's well slow down. I, this is a, a complex issue. If someone is creating jobs and there's a monetary value for them to stay in that spot, then sometimes it just makes good business sense. And, and if they're saying, we're either going to go to Mexico or stay here and pay tons of tax... You end up in a shitty situation where what would you do as the politician? Say, fuck well, you, go uh, to Mexico then? Well, the, we're in a global economy. I mean, we're, we, that's is exactly what we're dealing with. It used to be the case that the low-paid factory workers were there, you know, in a shittier part of town. I'm, I don't know if I'm allowed to use that language. You are. Um, the, you know, you would be in, you know, any industrial area, Pittsburgh, New York, uh, Buffalo, Detroit, and there, you know, there's a manufacturing class that might not be right in front of your face. You could walk around the fancier parts of area, but there, there were areas where those people lived. Those areas are now globalized. They're now in parts of the world that you yeah, don't even have unions, to see or go to. The unions to. killed them. The unions killed the working man. Yeah, I guess all we need to do is get rid of those pesky unions. And we did. It's called, everything would be great. We yeah. The, um, the unions it, got rid of Detroit. Yeah, sure. Oh, yeah. I'm sure the. Uh, I'm sure uh, you know moving those jobs out to overseas and uh, not having uh, tax incentives, you know, in, built in to allow that to happen, and not having tariffs to allow overseas uh, goods to come in we at got certain tons rates of tariffs. has nothing to do with it. Uh, you know, I feel as though uh, at this point it's pretty established uh, where we stand on these things. I, I I'm well, you know, the irony is it's genetic. You're genetically a hippie, and I am genetically, uh, I don't know, a, a free market capitalist. Well, these are controversial topics. Is nature, nurture, society, id, ego, superego. Nobody nurture has uh, gotten Nurture is everything. I think it's, it's nurture. I mean, sorry, nature is everything. I think it's genetic how religious you are. Hmm. Well, uh, perhaps if you're convincing enough. You'll amass a number of followers, and then you'll have a number of, you know, you'll be able to sway a voting block to your persuasion. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know we were going to fight, Jeff. I, I will agree with you on... Well, on a, uh, a healthy American debate. Good. You know what drives me nuts about a corporate graffiti is uh, the fucking Verizon logo on New York Cityscape when you're looking at it from Brooklyn. The, the, the reason, I mean... On the, in the free market side, I respect a corporation that can generate income and don't want that thwarted. But on the other side, you just ruined the fucking view with your tag, with your logo. Hey, Donald Trump ruins a lot of people's views by building a tower. And, uh, you know, if, if you had a if you were living on the fifth floor of a building and you had a nice view, 
and then suddenly across the street, a you know, a, a, a high rise goes up, and all of a sudden, all you're seeing is a uh, is nothing. That's a uh, that that's a that's a blot on the landscape it's as well. It's tricky because I don't want the government regulating that either. Look, let's. You don't the, believe in zoning laws? No. All right. Well, now we know where you stand on zoning laws. <laughs> I don't want any laws. That's why I love crass. I'm an anarchist. All right. Uh, uh, this, no, you should be having this discussion with Penny Rambeau. Or, uh, I Liberty, do all the time. I, I we have so, screaming uh, fights. I'm sure. He's that more be, libertarian no. than I am. Yeah, well, um, I feel as though these are, these are like, uh, there's, there's interesting points of contention among the, uh, you know, as far as gay marriage and as far as uh, drug legalization, the uh, libertarian standpoint is, uh, is uh, pretty interesting in, in terms of where it, where it fits between the left and right wing of America. Penny is a libertarian, I would call him. He is, he is pro-gay marriage, but I have heard him once say that it's not natural. And I have heard him say that it is, I think I, I, he believes it's unnatural for gays to adopt. Well, I'm not going to get into a political debate on somebody else's hypothetical beliefs. Um, but um, I feel like I've, I've listened to uh, – well, any, anyway, I, th- this, is, uh, this, this is all um, – I feel as though we are, we're, uh, we're, getting into, uh, we're getting into topics that could, that could take us hours to fully unpack. Right. Okay. That's good. I'm glad you said that. I just find it fascinating that we were, we're both sort of anarchist punks in our 20s. Uh, well, you know, I, I was basically a classic rock dude for most all my teen years. I, I was, uh, you know, strictly, um, you know, very devoted to the music of Sid Barrett, Jimi Hendrix, uh, you know, Grateful Dead, all of that stuff in my teens. I didn't really get into punk stuff until a bit later, um, in life. I mean, I didn't even own a, a crass album or uh or a uh you know even like american you wouldn't even necessarily call it political groups but uh you know minor threat who's do I, I didn't have any of those records in my collection until i was maybe 25 or something like that i was like out of college i was sort of a you know late i've always been a voracious music listener um but exploring the the punk end of things you know whether it was british punk or american punk or just you know, sort of drunken meathead punk or politically uh, astute punk. Uh, you know, I, I didn't really start having more awareness of a lot of those records until I was already in my mid twenties. Okay, so you were a you are a Crass fan. You yeah, you did a yeah. great album that I highly re- recommend people check out. That is, uh, what is it? Stations of the Crass, all acoustic guitar. Uh, well, my album is called 12 Crass Songs because it's just oh, right. 12 it's penis songs envies by in Crass. There. It's, yeah, I, I tried to do something from every album, um, but I didn't... Uh, I mean, there's there's so many good Crass songs that I didn't cover. I could easily do another album of Crass covers. Um, but yeah, it's just 12 songs. I guess I sort of leaned heavily towards the first three Crass records, which I, I think are the, are the great ones. Uh, Feeding of the Five Thousand, Stations of the Crass, and Penis Envy are, are three masterworks. I, I'm not a huge fan of uh, Christ the Album or Yes Sir I Will. I think Yes and, Sir I uh, Will was meant to discourage fans from following them. Right? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's nigh on. In some ways, Yes Sir I Will is the album that 
sounds like people's disparaging descriptions of the early albums. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It's, that uh, was the point. That's what I love about them, too, is when they got a following or a fan base, they would purposely dis- like push them away because that went against everything they believe in. But I, I got a song printed out here. It's White Punks on Hope. I, I've been listening to them on my computer for so long, I can't remember what goes on what album. I think this is from Stations. Um, and I just find it interesting that you and I are so different politically, but our interests are similar. I was a cartoonist too, and uh, we probably both love this song, and I feel it fits my politics perfectly, and I, I want to see if it fits yours too. Okay. Shall we try that? Sure. All right, let's go through it line by line. Yeah. Well, I will say, I mean, we're, uh, you know, I think it's funny that the, um, that, 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 uh, the, the sort of battle between the Clash and Crass in the late 70s, that they're, you know, and all those, there's, there's a bunch of Crass lyrics that are like anti Patti Smith, anti Sex Pistols. Yep. Um, there's really a lot of like punk factionalism at that time, which, you know, in retrospect, um, looks a bit different. I mean, you know, the, the Crass song Punk is Dead is from, uh, you know, I mean, the song itself is from like 78, 79 or something like that. Right. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty early anti-punk salvo. Well, it was considered over in 78 to a lot of people because 77 was so great. But okay, so the first line, because I used this song for the theme song of the podcast, uh, it's called White Punks on Hope. They said that we were trash. Well, the name is Crash, not Clash. They can stuff their punk credentials. It's them that take the cash. Uh, Crash were, they didn't... Uh, trademark their logo. They didn't tri- uh, copyright their songs. They didn't even put their names on their songs, I think because they were getting persecuted and arrested for it, so they wanted to keep everything ambiguous. The Clash essentially became a rock band, signed to CBS, and uh, had a successful career as a rock and roll band. Um, do you see that? I, when I hear that, I think, well, you're wrong, Penny. Uh, <laughs> they f- Fuck punk credentials. You're the, This song is about punk credentials being stupid. Um you they just made more money than you sorry well you know the clash are of a slight there's a huge difference in uh what was possible for a band to do in just those couple of years the idea of self-releasing an album and being an, an actual independent punk band which crass basically pioneered following the buzzcocks um who were really the first you know spiral scratch released by the buzzcocks was like one of the possibly the first self-released punk album that and it really made a significant impact that sold a huge amount of copies and then in the wake of that you have these independent labels like rough trade springing up um in uh in england and then in america and partially it's just a technological change it just became more accessible to actually manufacture your own records and you have a distribution network starting to spring up with these stores like the rough trade shop in london and independent record stores that would distribute albums from independent you know record labels that were sometimes quite small. The Clash, none of that infrastructure existed a year or so earlier when The Clash and The Sex Pistols point, yeah. were first popping up. Um, if The Clash and The Sex Pistols had come on the scene just a year later, um, there would have already been, in some ways, these networks, and they would have had an actual... They would have had more of a choice to make. But it wasn't even... It's not as though they made a. Ch- there was no consciousness of. It, it, it wouldn't even have occurred to them, and you know, you could do this independently. There, I, I don't think that even would have been 
a speck on their mental radar. Yeah, that's a good point. Like uh, Billy Idol, when when he started, when when Gen X began, they were just try to get signed every night. They were trying to get that on a label. That was what a band did. Yeah, yeah, that was that was you know, and you had a manager. That was like what a band did. That was just the way it was. And you know what? You didn't do, as far as I'm aware, you didn't have uh, merchandise. You know, I don't think bands in the '60s. You don't. Jimi Hendrix was not on tour with a with a box full of Jimi Hendrix records in That's the back of the point. van. You know, he was not on tour with a bunch of Jimi Hendrix T-shirts uh, on a merch table. But Crass went so late, they could have had their own T-shirts. They went well. well they did. The they did. Age. Well, they, they they they. What I'm saying is like they never got things, paid for any shirts. Well, they 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 made a lot of money. They sold a lot of records. They invested a lot in communal projects. Um, but they were also operating at a time where these things were possible. I mean, the fanzine revolution, the fact that you could hear about these bands without going through official PR channels um, was due to, uh, you know, more accessible photocopy technology. It wasn't as though, uh, you know, in the 60s, you had mimeograph leaflets and magazines and publications because of, you know, the existence of the mimeograph machine made that possible. So the fact that Crass was able to actually operate so independently... Um, which they didn't actually, their first album was released on, uh, I think Small Wonder is the name of the label, and they refused to print the uh, the first song on the first album. Oh yeah, that's ended why they ended silence. up being an right. indie label, because they, they like, had no choice. Yeah, because the, they, they wouldn't, they couldn't, they, they left the first song off of that first I've always thought that was record. so unusual that someone who works in a factory is just going like that, and they go, hang on a minute, no, we're <laughs> yeah. not doing that, that's yeah. not happening. Sorry, that's rude. Yeah, um, so that was sort of what prompted Crass to take that, that um, somewhat unprecedented measure of being like, we're going to make our own records and operate completely independently. And that just didn't exist. You know, it's possible that if The Clash came out a year later, they might have followed that example. Um, in fact, in the uh, liner notes to the uh, uh, Best of Rough Trade compilation, um, Jeff Travis, the head of Rough Trade, says something about how um, it's a shame that, you know, if Crass, if Clash, if the Clash had come out, you know, they might have ended up on Rough Trade the way a band like Stiff Little Fingers, which is essentially like the Belfast, Ireland version of the Clash, yep. a very political, hard-hitting, great songwriting punk band. They end up on Rough Trade, um, but the fact that a gazillion people have heard of the Clash and a very small fraction of people comparatively have heard of Stiff Little Fingers um, goes to show that when you have the the distribution networks and the huge amount of publicity money behind a label like CBS, you're going to end up in a lot more shops and with a lot more awareness and a lot more you know publicity campaigns. I think Joe Strummer said that about Crass. He said they were a great band, but it was a, all for what? He goes, they were a storm in a teacup. Right, um, because he feels as though they weren't being hurt. You know, They're not making as much of an impression on people because they weren't being you know, as widely disseminated. But I don't think that that, you look around the world now and it's incredible. You can't go to a, a, you know, any kind of squat community or any kind of punk rock area of any place in the world and not see people with, you know, crass patches and um, yeah. the very idea of, you know, anarchist punk, like independent DIY uh, methods of operation, self-sustaining, not self punk as a self-sustaining and actual lifestyle rather than just a self-destructive let's get wasted and like kick a hole through the, the front of the bar window. Um, a lot of that comes right from, uh, from crass. So that's, uh, yeah, that's like a huge influence. The, well, the whole Fugazi wa uh, Washington scene was 
deeply entrenched in DIY. I think uh, I think that um, they had the same distributor. I think Southern distributed Minor Threat Records. There was definitely a huge. I mean, I see hardcore as just American punk, and the DIY scene in DC definitely got it from Crass, and it's permeated like Occupy Wall Street. You see it everywhere. I wish Crass had got some money for some of those patches or some of those T-shirts, uh, and. It's funny that he's saying they can stuff their punk credentials when Crass ended up being indie because no one would print their records. Okay, let's jump to the next line, all right? Uh, they won't change... This is now Crass talking about Clash, and it's really about uh, fundamental anarchists who are, stick closely to their beliefs and sellouts. So it's this isn't a very specific punk thing. This is a broader picture. He says, they won't change nothing with their fashionable talk, all their RAR badges and their protest walk. He's talking about um, Rock Against Racism and the clash were big on these uh, anti-racist marches. And then he says, thousands of white men standing in a park, objecting to racisms like a candle in the dark. Um, Penny Rimbaud, crass here, were mocking the punk rock anti-racist movement, saying that it's just fucking fashion. Blacks aren't even listening to you. You're just doing it to feel better about yourself, and it's got nothing to do with racism. Yeah, I think that it, that actually was shown to, um, you know, not be the case. I think the fact that The Clash included a lot of reggae in their material probably introduced a lot of people to those to that material and those artists and they had people like Mikey Dredd on their albums um and you know sort of uh brought to attention a lot of material that a lot of people might not otherwise have been exposed to uh well the early 70s there was a lot of tension with Jamaicans and the Brits the Yardies they used to call them but the Jamaicans assimilated they got into soccer and they became I mean you have Jamaicans in the English Defense League now they're part of English patriotism but the whole the rock against racism thing was brought about um, partially because of these statements that Eric Clapton made at the time about keeping England white and just really outrageous statements coming from a guy who's based his whole career on covering Bob Marley and covering Robert Johnson, you know, making millions of dollars uh, off of uh, black artist material, um, and he's got the nerve to stand up and say keep England white. So rock against racism was a you know a, a pretty significant reaction, which didn't. Um, you know, it, it, it didn't have zero impact because I wouldn't personally, I wouldn't have been aware of those statements of Clapton's if Rock Against Racism had never existed. That's what brought that to my attention because I was like, oh, what is this Rock Against Racism thing? What was going on? I think it. And you had these integrated bands like the Specials and you know the whole two tone ska thing that was happening at that time was a way to bring people together and have black and white audiences and black and white bands. Um, see, race race is such a plays out so differently in England than it does in America. The the, uh, right. the issues and the tensions are based on different things. Well, in Canada, we were very into British punk because all our parents were British. It's a new country started by British people, basically, and uh, we followed Sex Pistols, Clash much more than than Minor Threat and D and hardcore. But uh, we had a Rock Against Racism show actually in Ottawa. We brought Oi Polloi down and. When all this was starting in the late 70s, you didn't have Nazi skinheads. When Rock Against Racism got big, you started having Nazi skinheads and Screwdriver became a Nazi skinhead band from being a punk band. Maybe this spurred Nazi skinheads just by being so annoying. Well, sure, but then you've got these great songs like Nazi Punks Fuck Off where, you know, Jello Maybe that made more Nazi like, Punks. Uh, you know, go, go rob a bank if you've got real balls. 
Um, you know, it, it's, uh, I, I feel like stuff, and, you know, Krantz has stuff about that, too. There, there's, um, I feel like the people that are bold enough to make those statements to their audience, you know, to an audience that's uh, potentially going to punch them in the face for saying something like that, because uh, you have a bunch of these just, like, people that are just out to beat oh, somebody like when up. Sham 69 say anti-racist stuff. Yeah, it's like you're uh, you're potentially um, these these they're not playing in like clubs that have significant security. Nobody's gonna jump up and like defend the state. You know, it's not like there's a security guard there to to keep a a violent person from jumping off the stage and socking the singer in the face or hitting him on the head with a baseball bat. You know, there's no it, these, these are not venues or uh, tr- these are not bands that have a wall of protection against uh, you know the violent elements in their audience so it, it takes a whole lot of guts for uh, you know a lot of statements made by um, a lot of these people I remember SNFU would there'd always be skinheads coming on stage and fighting them but it was just because Chai Pig was Chinese <laughs> but uh, an MDC they had a song called Skinhead and they had it was like S because you're so stupid K like that but they had to change it when they would go to certain shows because skinheads would show up and beat the shit out of them yeah these people were t- I mean you but know, I'm John, John think- Lydon was getting like stabbed in the streets of England for uh, you know these are statements. Well, he was getting that, stabbed for that, insulting the Queen, right? You, I mean, and uh, you know, they, it really says something when you're willing to make a statement that like puts you at personal risk because somebody might actually punch you or stab you. Um, you know that that person has to believe enough in what they're saying that they're willing to like risk their health, risk their safety. To make that statement. Well, we need that. We need those balls again in this politically correct age. We need people who are willing to lose their living, lose their jobs, get the shit kicked out of them. I feel like we need punk rock again. Well, I mean, if punk rock is the definition of it or whether it's just, you know, whatever name you call it. I mean, the people, the Freedom Riders who went down to the 60s, you know, in the 60s, who went down south to register black voters, they would get off those buses and face a mob of people with you know sticks and bats that were just there to smash them in the head and send them to the hospital as soon as they stepped off the bus. And that's what they were there to they were like we're just going to go down and walk into this meat grinder and just get beat up and I it's not going to be pleasant and I, it's going to hurt and we're going to and we're just we're we're doing this because we feel like it's right and we're we we need to get this done. But politically correct political correctness has its roots in people seeing how cool the freedom riders are and wanting to be as cool as them, but there's no not there's no evil racist waiting with bats so they go, "Uh, I'm going to find homophobes, transphobes. I'm going to invent my own bad guys so I can get beat up and be a freedom rider." But they end up just depressing people. But one thing I want to well, say Well, it's about that comes back to that thing of like are you punching down or punching up? It's the same thing when you know, people talk about a People gripe about welfare. They're gonna get you know, gripe about a, a welfare mom chiseling the system for yeah, a couple but if thousand you're bucks. A they're, true not egalitarian about a, you know, they're not griping about a billionaire. Doesn't punch up or down. Welfare. They see them all. I thought you were. You thought everyone was equal. Well, no, a billionaire has a lot more power than uh, than a welfare mom. So well, I know you've imbued up? him with enough power to solve the eighteen trillion dollar debt. You turned him into Superman. I didn't turn him into Superman. He's just got a lot of money, and we could use that money to uh, you know, put a few more buses on 79th Street for one thing. Um, I was just, uh, one thing I wanted to say, because uh, I don't want to get back to the whole tax thing, but uh, when we were fighting Nazi skinheads in the 80s, it was white middle class kids, the punks, fighting poor white kids, the Nazis. It really didn't have anything to do with race, and I think that's what, what Penny's getting at here, but he, he expound, expands upon it. 
He goes, objecting racism is like a candle in the dark. Black man's got his problems and his way to deal with it, so don't fool yourself you're helping with your white liberal shit. If you care to take a closer look at the way things really stand, you'd see we're all just niggers to the rulers of this land. Right. Well, that's, you know, I've, I've, that's a strong statement, and I, I'm always behind any statement that tries to make the case for class war rather than race war, or at least looking th- at things through a class filter rather than through a race filter. Um, you know, of course, that's, uh, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. was starting to move in that direction, talking about, um, you know, battling poverty in, in uh, you know, as a colorless no, concept. No, no, the rulers of this land. He's talking about the government. Well, yeah, he's basically, he's saying, it, you know, it's a one, it's a, um, you know, we are the 99% regardless of color. Um, we are all oppressed, black, white, brown, Asian. Uh, By the government. Uh, well, you're extrapolating government. He, you know, I would suspect that he that he includes the rich in that. You know, I'm I'm looking through it. Uh, I'm I'm looking at it in a you know through a class filter rather than through a uh, state government suppression filter. I'm sure you know it could be seen both ways. We could we could unpack crass lyrics and figure out whether he's talking about just the rich. Or uh, you know they're they're yeah, very but, you're right. uh, but, He's, but but also I, I was gonna say um, that's probably a direct st- you know direct relationship to uh, the Clash's lyrics in White Riot where he says um, you know uh, something about like black man doesn't mind throwing a brick um, but you know white man walks the streets to chicken to try it everybody's doing just what they're told to because nobody wants to go to jail uh, White Riot I want to riot a riot of my own. Um, and that you know that's a that's a pretty bold statement for the for the clash to be making. To well, the, I think they got scared. I mean, the, the white man in Hammersmith Plains they they went down to Jamaica, and they fucking had a horror. I don't think that was white white man in Hammersmith Plains. Maybe it was, but when safe they went your, down safe to European home. Yeah, they they go. I don't like it here. It's fucking scary in Jamaica. I guess we're not all bros. Yeah, well, I don't know what the heck the, all these rock stars were doing going to Jamaica anyway, um, and the Rolling Stones going down. That just seems like you know rich. Tourism. Yeah, it's a holiday in Cambodia. Yeah, exactly. Um, the uh, I feel like that that um, I don't really understand why, but that's you know the Clash spent a huge amount of money making their second album down there and uh, give them enough rope. That's like a major production, you know, all these uh, layers of guitars and everything. Who's just you know would would the Clash have been better off making DIY low budget albums? Uh, who knows? They made some great. Great recordings, I and uh, you know, Crass made some great recordings. I love the sound of those Crass records. I, I I didn't cover Crass because I thought their original record sounded bad. I, I you could never make a record that sounds more awesome than Stations of the Crass. Right. I just figured there's a lot of people that wouldn't listen to to Crass just because you know they don't have the uh, they don't have the sort of cultural language translation skills to turn a hardcore punk song into something that they can understand. So I figured I would like, you know, there's probably people that would enjoy those songs if they could sort of find an access point. But there's, there's something we're, we're glossing over here. He says, don't fool yourself you're helping with your white liberal shit. He's saying racism is bullshit. And they said that later on in the song. He goes, um, they said because of racism they'd come out on the street. It was just a form of fascism for the socialist elite Bigotry and blindness, a Marxist con, another clever trick to keep us all in line. So he's saying bigotry and blindness is a myth, 
And this whole idea that there's this racist specter out is a complete bullshit con used by Marxists to to control people and say we have to do this because it's so racist. We need to have this. We need to have this welfare state because America is incredibly racist. And he's saying no. You just want more government control. I don't think that that's actually what Steve or Penny or whoever wrote those particular lyrics would have been saying. Uh, that's you know if that's your interpretation of it. I think that the... Bigotry and blindness, a Marxist con. Well, I think you'd find a lot of Marxists or revolutionaries of any stripe all of a similar opinion that, you know, divisiveness along race lines is just counter-revolutionary. What? Every time I go to a fucking Occupy thing or some cop rally, they've got red flag and it has black people on the cover going, yeah, and there's literally a hammer and a sickle. They love it. fucking well, Soros. Well, you want to be inclusive, million. sure. You don't want. I mean, I mean that was like a big problem with unions. You know, 150 years ago, they were all white unions. They were, you know, and that's just counter-revolutionary. That's counterproductive for a union's bargaining power to be exclusive in that way. These craft unions that don't allow in the lower-paid laborers, who in some cases would have been black or would have been Chinese, in other cases. Um, and that gives you a lot less bargaining power against the bosses when you're actually going to have these exclusive rules about Marxist who, you know, love racism within the union. They, they want you to riot. The well, Soros against you know spent- against the enemy, sure, against the uh, you know against against Louis the you know Louis the Fourteenth, Louis the Sixteenth, Marie Antoinette, cops, uh, you know, white people czar, having brunch, czar Nicholas, Marxists et want black people to harass white people having brunch. No, I think the based idea on bigotry is, and blindness. It's a uh, I think it's the con. idea for the uh, the manufacturing classes. Those of us who actually do the work, like right now, you know, I w- when I just dropped my car off at this mechanic over here on East Ninety Fourth Street, the woman that was at the front desk doing all the paperwork, um, she was like, you know, I quit this job, and they tried to get somebody else to do. They, the guy, the the mechanic's wife, took over. She quit after a day. She couldn't deal with this. He tried doing it himself. The boss of the place. He couldn't do it. They called me up and begged me to come back. And I said, well, there you see it. If you quit for one day, anytime the MTA workers go on strike, everybody's up in arms. Anytime the fire department or the teachers, anytime these people say, you know what, if, you know, we're just not going to do this work unless we're treated fairly, everybody flies into a rage. We can't exist for five minutes without you. You got, you can't go on strike. Oh, we could exist plenty of days without the fire um, department. (laughs) Tell that to the people on East 7th Street. The, uh, the, the, uh, they didn't put the, out the, the buildings. The buildings collapsed. The whole corner collapsed. Yeah, remember the Chicago fire? Mrs. O'Leary's cow, the entire city burned down. Yeah, that's how far you know, back one, you got to go. You one, think you the know, fire department the, the, doesn't get paid enough? Oh, so it was let the fires burn. All right. They, get, um, they, I, they retire on 120 grand a year at 40 years old. Hey, they deserve it. They, they're still not as much money as Trump, and they do a whole lot more when good for the people. When did your dad retire? Well, he retired 1962. How old was he? 19, well, he didn't retire. He had a back injury. Um, so He, he was, got paid he tons was, of uh, money from the taxpayer. And then uh, you... No, it's actually not true because he, he was uh, it, it, something like, uh, you know, he has a very small... Because he wasn't on the clock. He was injured, you know, working at a fire without officially being on the clock. He should have gotten more. Um, but the uh, he had an unusual circumstance. But well, the if, usual if circumstance the, today uh, is 120 grand a year forever, and it's fucking unsustainable. Hey, I mean, if you don't value the infrastructure of the fire department and the teachers and the transit workers, what is there of value? If you're, if you feel as though, 
you know, I never said but, I don't value them. Ninety percent, or something like eighty percent, of firefighters across the country are volunteer. It works fine outside of New York. These guys are spoiled and they're fucking fat. Hey, they're running into burning buildings to what? save no, people's not. lives. No, they're not. When was they're, the last time you saw they, a fire in New York besides this Seventh yeah, Street thing? Yeah, well, a few weeks ago, right in my neighborhood there. I hear sirens were, uh, four the, times a day. I've I've lived here for fifteen years, seen maybe three fires. All right. Well, if the libertarian point of view is that we don't need a fire department. Then uh, I just wouldn't want Never to live in a that. city run by the Never libertarians. Never said that. I said they could be volunteer, and they certainly don't deserve 120 grand a year to retire at 40, and then give that money to their wife after they die. How, where's that money coming from? Down with firefighters! They don't deserve no. pay. We want these they, landlords to make billions because they're making our neighborhoods better. How right. much do I they see, deserve? Uh, well, you know, I'm not like I say. I'm, I didn't come in here prepared to change your mind about anything. What's I don't the limit, know though, Jeff? 120 grand a year? You don't think that's a lot for 40 for a 40 year old? Not the pen, not, not based on what the landlords make. This guy uh, who for, gets uh, paid to uh, sleep. Hey, I don't know uh, how you know Gilman Management that used to own the building that I lived in in Williamsburg. God knows how many millions of dollars, billions of dollars. I'm, they own buildings all over the city. And there's a whole lot more, you know, these real estate people. Uh, you know, Trump is the only one who's made a public figure out of himself um, just because he's an egomaniac. A lot of them realize that, like, you know, we better stay out of the public view, you know. Yeah, but um, they but made money but in real estate. They, they, made, talk yeah, to, they made money in real estate. Because talk to, that's, talk to in investors in Florida who went broke. It's it's not easy to make money in real estate. Yes, Manhattanites so that's won. Right. So the resources... So the reason so you found of society, one rich guy and you're like, well, so the, he's rich, so fire guys get to retire so the, at forty. Yeah, if the re, well, we are conscious human beings. Society is not the jungle. We can decide what the values of our society are and where the resources should be spread. Um, this is not. Or are we living in a jungle and the biggest lion just kills whoever he feels like killing, and you know, old people, children. It's just kill or be killed. It's I mean, not that's a lion. Not it's not a lion. It's a big, gentle giant who wants Actually, to help people. Is, I don't think he's so he gentle. It makes him All more. Right. Well, okay. I don't if think you, you know trust, how much people pay you want, in tax, if you, if you want to trust, um, if, you know, if you feel as though they're they're trustworthy to look over their own affairs without any kind of regulation, that that's your opinion, and um, you know, if that's the way. That you're gonna vote? I mean, I I I didn't come here today prepared to change your mind. Okay. Um, you know. I want to go through this song. But look, my but, house uh, upstate. Okay, yeah. it cost me about forty dollars in Easy Pass to get up there and come back. So the the roads are privatized, even though they're publicized, and they tax my property tax and my school tax just on that house, right? Not my income. That's totally different. Is twelve grand a year. So every month I have to pay a thousand dollars just to have a home that I own on land I own. Is right. that enough? Should that be more? Well, it depends what the run. I mean, look, if if you have to pay taxes in order to cover, uh, you I don't know, know what it covers. The fire department's you know, volunteer. The garbage I have to go to the dump and pay for it. The roads are shit, and I built my own road. I don't know what I'm paying twelve grand a year for. The high school down the street, my kids will never see. Sounds to me like they need to tax the rich more because if there's not enough infrastructure, I'm rich not, and I'm spending no, twelve grand if, a year if, for if, that house. If there's not enough money to even pay the fire department, sounds to me like the priorities of the society are topsy turvy. If uh, you know, there's it's, not there's, enough there's, fires. There's, it's supply and demand. That's why all you know, almost all firemen are volunteer. There's a certain amount of resources available. There's a, you know, there's a certain amount of energy, wealth, productivity, and as a society. 
a theoretically, supposedly democratic society, you know, we have the responsibility to determine where yeah. those resources and are And that's allocated. a gross oversimplification. And, um, and they've already allotted way too much. Let's get back to this song here. I'll sure. send you, a, I'm going to put a video up on the site where Bill Whittle takes down exactly how much money the rich have, what they pay in tax, and what would happen if we double, triple, quadrupled that. And it's nothing. <laughs> well, all right. If that's Bill Whittle's opinion. No, it's not um, his opinion. That's a, that's it shows you the math. I suppose he's entitled to that opinion. No, it's not now what, uh, It's a calculator's what, what, opinion. What we get into uh, at that point is uh, who's got more money to spread an opinion and who's got more creative and persuasive ways of spreading an opinion. This is math, Jeff. It's all just math on oh, YouTube. It's not, though. Put Bill Whittle on that side of the room and put me on that side of the room. And, and have eat us you both, alive. And have us both <laughs> sing a song, right? Who is the audience? And you put 10 people in the middle of the room. Who are they going to pay that's attention to? Art. I'm talking about art versus math. Everything is art. No. Numbers rhetoric, are not art. Rhetoric is art. Yes, I agree. But he doesn't do rhetoric. It's math. Anyway. Uh, so um, the, the end of this song goes like this. Because we're running out of time here. Pogo on a Nazi. Spit upon a Jew. Useless, mindless violence that offers nothing new. Left-wing violence, right-wing violence, all seems much the same. Bully boys out fighting, it's just the same old game. Boring fucking politics that'll get us all shot. Left-wing, right-wing, you can stuff the lot. Keep your petty prejudice, I don't see the point. Anarchy and freedom is what I want. Yeah, I, Woody Guthrie said right-wing, left-wing, chicken-wing. But um, there is an opinion among certain left anarchist groups um uh, and I don't want to put any words into anyone's mouth here among the many, many people that were involved in the Crass Collective. Um, some people are anti-voting. I disagree with that opinion. I feel as though if you're going to enact social change, it's really good to take part in activist, hands-on, nonviolent direct action. But the ballot and the democratic voting system is an important part of how we enact change. It's a broken mess so, that isn't worth your time, and to go and vote is to tell them that the system works and you have faith in it. Well, that's it, your opinion. It's, but it's, it's there's, justifying there, their stupid mess. So you're anti-voting? Totally. Okay, well, now we I know where we... see the government as a lost now, cause. I'm an now anarchist. Now we know where we stand on you're these things. You're a socialist. You're a Woody Guthrieite. Yeah, well, you you're know, a there's commie. a fire department in my neighborhood that put out a fire on East 7th Street the other day. That's socialism right there. That wasn't every man for himself. The people in that building didn't have to pay the fire, the fire department, department didn't put themselves out the fire. The fire died of old age. The entire block is gone. That entire corner of the block is gone. And the fire department could be could exist on a tenth of what we pay for it right now. What about infrastructure regulation, the illegal gas tapping that led to the explosion? Should there be no regulators? Should it be every building for themselves? Hey, if you want to take the risk, why you know tap the gas, do as thou wilt. That uh, was an anarchy, illegal man. alien, by the way. That was an illegal uh, Russian immigrant a, who forged this is, this a signature is, on a test, and that's why the gas explosion happened. Well, it seems to me as though a little more safety regulation would have saved a whole lot of people's homes, for one thing. And it seems that's to me a good that the point. fire department. That's a good point. Uh, but we did have it regulated, and really some glad. Russian criminal we, forged a signature. I don't see what the fact of somebody's background has anything to do with it. I don't care if the person was because uh, you know, he's an illegal and he has different what, values. It, I think that's a pretty, he's a corrupt Russian pretty, uh, who came from a horrible country based that on, is uh, where lives no, are treated with less value. 
Uh, Russia's well, a fucking it, prison. It's like he came out of prison. A prisoner. America's, America's got more prisoners per capita than uh, any civilization no, in history. No, Russia has more prisoners because the entire fucking country's a prison. I've been to Russia. Have you been to Russia? I've never I, been. Uh, I would never well, go. It's like that, Africa. Well, I don't see why I would bother. All right. Well, now we, we know where we stand on these things. I, I'm, uh, you know, we're just uh, expressing some personal opinions here. You, you think Russia can... Will you admit Russia's way worse than America? Well, yeah. After the uh, the the overthrow of their uh, of their socialist communist system, in which the oligarchs seized all the resources, and these billionaire buddies of uh, of uh, you know Yeltsin just carved up the country among so themselves. So before and their the buddies, collapse, it was better for millions of people who actually had free education. And uh, guaranteed work and a guaranteed living. Millions of people that became poverty struck because of, uh, in the changeover, it was just a gangster free-for-all just carving up the country among Boris Yeltsin's rich buddies. Um, they took all the resources, were suddenly privatized. Oh, now so-and-so owns the oil and makes all the profit on that yeah, rather than they, it being part of society. It went capitalist, so the eight well, Jews it went gangster, who, if that's who the same had thing. to do black market because no one would let them trade, they were the only ones who knew how to do capitalism, so they go, well, I guess we'll have to handle it from here on in because your anti-Semitism made us the only capitalists in the country and we had to work on the black market and now the black market's the only market. And by the way, before that... It was way worse. Communism was a fucking mess. Didn't you see the lineups? Well, you know, I think it might have been uh, a whole lot better for some people. Gorbachev was doing a lot to reform the system. Oh, my God. Uh, certainly the uh, suppression of a, of a free press and suppression of travel, these things are terrible and should be done away with, those kinds of totalitarian uh, repressive measures. It was a hundred percent totalitarian. Is, is gonna, yeah, uh, Cubans you know, get free education too. Their prostitutes are well educated, as Fidel put it. Well, there's. You also have to look at what the systems were in those countries before the revolution. They were living under medieval conditions. Oh Five hundred years. Cuba you know, they're, was. They're, they're, Cuba's better off with socialism now. Well, I, under a gangster like Batista, you think yeah, that... Yeah, uh, Batista, it, it, they were it, way it, better were, off. Well, who? Uh, Every, the, one, the, the vast 1%. majority. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, under a gangster capitalist system, you're going to have, you know, sure, the mafia is doing all right. And uh, you've got these people that are working out in the sugarcane fields that are, you know, zero health care, zero rights. Zero, they're completely illiterate for generations. They're just on. They're completely they have absolutely no voice in history. So you've never heard of them. Meanwhile, the people in positions of power are the ones who are represent you look you turn on your TV right now you turn, go to the movies you will never see anybody who's in a union never on any yeah, sitcom the unions fu the on unions any, fucked on, you know, up in any they film. got too big they got too bloated god, look at the sure, teachers unions god it's can you this fire eight a hour work day what a what a drag i sure wish we didn't have that teachers sure wish it was back to 16 hour have work day have you ever seen a fucking teacher get fired can teachers get fired well listen have <laughs> you ever taught a class? That's pretty difficult. Yeah, I have. It's yeah, fucking it, it's, easy. You're it's, done at it's, three. It's, you get two months off in the summer. Oh, man. Who gets two months off? It is tough, man. Teaching <sighs> is really hard. What a myth. And, um, well, this this is great. I think this is, this is a good way to unpack rats. where everybody stands. Well, but this is what I wanted to know. Teachers are spoiled brats. The fire department spoiled brats. Yeah. It's the, the, the real pillars of society are the real estate teachers agents. Teachers are not pillars of society anymore. Teachers are uh, just... 
the result of bloated unions. They can't get fired. Charter school well, teachers are great. We had a charter school what? guy in here the other day. I think a lot of private school teachers are great, but your average public school teacher is incompetent, and it's because you can't fire them. So if you if you ran an, an island society and I ran an island you're society, you're talking about the concept of teachers. You're talking about the reality. I, I would have. Um, well, you're, I mean, you're you're talking to a guy whose mom was a teacher and whose dad was uh, in the fire department. So a communist. I'm, I'm coming at I'm coming from a certain perspective. Just you know, I'm a product of public education myself. I wouldn't you know my entire education background from uh, primary school, junior high, high school. State college. Yeah, you um, went to some is, of the worst schools uh, in America. <laughs> yeah, I must be so horribly uh, educated. Well, I'm actually shocked that you're um, defending them. You liked going to school in the Lower East Side. Didn't you have a fight every day? No, I mean this, the, the Lower East Side was actually quite a nice neighborhood. Uh, in turn, you know, it was like Sesame Street. You knew all your neighbors. You knew the people hanging out on the street. Um, it it really was a neighborhood. On uh, the, uh, you know, I feel as though in the 80s it, even. Yeah, I, I uh, the, you know, th- to me, the, um, well, this gets into other other topics, but I, f- I feel like, you know, um, I mean, God, my my parents have been in that neighborhood since the, the late fifties, and there are plenty of people that lived. I mean, there are people living in much worse, you know, people living further, you know, people living on Avenue C, on Avenue D. That was, you know, these are really rough areas. Or people living in the South Bronx. Um, I mean, nobody wants to go back to, uh, you, know, you know, there's there's a uh, nobody wants to go back to being mugged. That was never fun. Um, but, you know, at least uh, you weren't getting mugged with regularity by the landlords the way you are now. Um, it was a whole lot more livable when Whoa. you had uh, when you were paying, you know, 200 bucks a month rent. Is it uh, livable when a- an entire building's devoted to selling heroin? <laughs> hey, we lived there. I don't know anybody who can afford to live there. I'm the only person. Still living in the East Village. This uh, everybody that, that I know Thatcher is out. quote in, uh, where she says, you would rather everyone be lower down and the poor and the rich closer together than for everyone to be higher up, but the gap between rich and poor to be bigger. I think everybody would agree that we all want everybody to be higher up. Uh, we want to elevate the people that really have you so know, you agree a tough that way this to go. is better than this. I don't know how much that these, these this fingers show New on York, the radio, and that's old New York. Uh, these are visual representations. It's a video, yeah, we're but, recording. But uh, oh, we're recording. Oh, I should have gone to my hairdresser before I showed up here. <laughs> um, well, I feel as though there's uh, it, whether you want to, you you can refer to your experts, and I can refer to my experts, and you know you can say my experts are full of nonsense, and I can say your experts are full of nonsense. But you know, in general, the big question would seem from at least some perspective to just be a question of compassion. Do you want all all Shit. all systems are going to have errors. There's not going to be a perfect system. So to me, if the system if you're going to have a system that's going to be in error, I would just out of general compassion and being a nice guy, I'd rather have a system that errs maybe treating people a little too kindly than a system that errs on treating people too harshly. The, the second system, the harshly one, everyone's better off. It's this. But some people are treated, there's, there's people that are really suffering. Yeah. And pe- in this they system, suffer and, and, more in your commie system. No, not it's as It's called fun. old Russia. <laughs> no, I mean, no, see, the thing is, I never understood why, you know, I, I, I'm certainly not against democracy. I'm, a, you know, I think democracy is a really radical 
experiment in human civilization. Do we, as Spider-Man says, with great power comes great responsibility. As a society, do we really have, uh, you know, the the wisdom to run ourselves via via you know a majority vote of everybody being able to participate and making the decisions for the good of all? These are debates that go back to, you know, go back to ancient Greece. Democracy is still. There are people who will argue uh, that democracy is stupid because the richest, most powerful person, the strongest, smartest person should tell everybody else what to do. I mean, that's called fascism. But well, yours, that's a, communism that's a point of view. is fascism. There's I'm an a, anarchist. A, that's why I wanted to go through this song. I'm a punk rocker. No, I, mean, I want why, anarchy. Why can't you have a, You're why a can't communist. You have a, why can't you? Well, no, I never said singer. I was like, I'm, I'm not I'm a communist. I'm an anarchist punk rocker. I never said I was a communist. But I do feel as though there are better ways to, well, you feel there's better ways to run society than you're currently yeah, being run. Yeah, let it be. I feel like there's better ways to run society than it's currently being run. Everybody that's on the street fascism. You're would a fascist. All right. Now that we're getting down to the nitty gritty here. <laughs> uh, my friend Gavin over here is of the opinion that I'm a fascist. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I do think you're way too far left, though. But uh, uh, this, if you look up Jeffrey Lewis, this is not representational of the art he puts out. He's a, uh, and I know most people who watch this probably don't agree with me either, but uh, he's a really talented cartoonist. I, I'm an autobio comics guy, and I love the autobio stuff you do. I don't really like fictional comics, but uh, those are great, too. I highly recommend you check out his comic books. And if you want to see, he's mostly known to, to people who aren't that familiar with his work as, as the guy who did that awesome Will Oldham song about thinking you saw Will Oldham on the train. That's a great starter video for those of you who want to uh, take baby steps towards his music. But he's a really talented guitarist, a really funny and involved uh, lyricist um, who is worth your time. And I think you should check out his comics too. But I think your folk music will have more appeal to more people comics are esoteric for the most part comics are very esoteric it's true and he's not a, a dogmatic political dude i'm just needling him here because that's the show but I, it's not like he's going to the workers union commie playtime after this to do a, a talk I, I might be you don't know where i'm going after this i can tell you're probably uh you're probably going to a coffee shop um i think i'm gonna go home and do my taxes that's not very libertarian of me is it <laughs> Thanks for coming, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on to your crazy uh, fascist Nazi <laughs> capitalist <laughs> propaganda gig. I, I love it's, doing these sorts of things. It's grueling to fight, but it's better for everyone. It's the American way. <laughs>